working our way through the book of Romans. We are in chapter 14. Last week we started with the first six verses talking about the fact that there are non-essentials in the Christian life. There are those things which are essential around which are the gospel and salvation and the core doctrines of our faith and our moral life around which we gather and stand firm. But there are many things in the Christian life and in the church that are not essential. And it is often a great harm to the church and to our witness when we fight and bicker over things which are not of the same importance and about which there should be freedom and grace. So we did verses 1 to 6 last week. This week we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 13. Uh, But I'm going to go ahead and read starting in verse 1 just to give us the full context. As he's continuing really the, the same argument throughout the entire 14th chapter and even into the 15th chapter. So let's uh, read now the Word of God. Romans 14, 1 to 13. It says, As for the one who is weak in faith, we should welcome him. But we should not quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise or look down on the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is because it is before his own master that he will stand or fall, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him, to make us stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one needs to be convinced in your own mind. One who observes the day needs to observe it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats needs to eat in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains to the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. For to this end, Christ died, and he lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. So why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful Lord's Day morning and the chance to be gathered together as your church. We are your people. We love you. We worship you. We give ourselves to you. And we come now as we come to your word, living and true. Father, would you speak it to us afresh with power, with conviction. Give us understanding. And Father, lead us in a way everlasting. In a way that honors you and is good and healthy in the life of your church. For we ask and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there are four points you'll see on your outline. It's there in your bulletin on the other side of the, uh, 
the leadership team for the next campaign. There's a brief outline. And you'll see there that the first point I want to make is that God cares a great deal about our unity. I could make this point from 50 different texts in the New Testament. You know, not least of which is John 17, where Jesus prays for the church on his last night on earth before he is crucified and he leaves. He prays that the church, that we, that Christians would be one, even as he and the Father are one. That's a great, deep, and profound level of unity God's church. And that is what this passage drives at. He lays out, he is walking through these things in the life of the church that are debatable. There's a lot of things that are not, and we're going to try to make that distinction very clearly before we're done this morning, but there are a lot of things that are. We need to have the wisdom to know what they are. Verse 1, he says the fundamental principle that he's laying down is that the one who is weak in faith, we need to welcome. We need to accept those who are weak in disputable matters. This is, he says in verse 3, that the one who is strong, God has welcomed him. So we're all welcome. That is the whole point. Is whether you're weak or strong on these things, whichever side you may fall on some of these issues, God has welcomed all of us into one body. And he wants there to be unity, which is the whole point of Romans 14. We are except the weak and disputable matters, things we called last week, as theologians have called it, the agia word. Right? As a word, it means, you know, things that are indifferent. Some people don't like that because in some ways they're not indifferent, they're disputable, they're important, but they're disputable. They're not essential matters, they're not the core matters. They're non-essential. So who are the weak in this passage? We said the weak are those whose consciences are bound by things that God does not command. Right? We saw that in verse 2 when he said that the one who believes that he may, there's one who believes he can eat anything, but the weak person eats only vegetables, right? He doesn't feel free to eat meat. There are those who are free, the strong, those whose consciences are enlightened by the Scripture. They're, they're in the right place. It's a mature conscience. They feel free to eat anything. But there are those, the weak does not feel free to eat meat. He only eats vegetables. If you want to know more about that, you can listen to last week's sermon if you weren't here. Those whose consciences are bound by things that God does not require. There's so much of that. In, in cultural church life. So many things that the Bible is not clear or firm or dogmatic about, but we are. And so the weak are either untaught or they're mistaken. They either just don't know or they've not understood properly. And so they feel bound in places where God has given freedom, requiring things of themselves and others that God himself is not required. Paul uses eating, drinking, and feast days. He mentions eating here in, in different days that we do. In verse 21, he brings in uh, drinking. You know, some feel free to drink wine, some don't. And so he uses these examples. Some will eat meat, some won't. Some will drink wine, some won't. Some want to continue to celebrate some of the Old Testament feast days and some feel free. We don't have to do that anymore. We're free to eat and to drink and to not celebrate all of those days. There are examples of things that he says we're not to quarrel about. We're not to quarrel about them and we're not to judge each other over them. He's so clear on this. And so I want to remind us though, and this is where I'm going to say it now, I'm going to talk about these things and then I'm going to say that's going to be my conclusion, which is this. Not everything is disputable. 
and the danger is to go away thinking that all of these things are just a matter of opinion, and that's not true. The Bible is very clear about many, many things. It's very clear about the gospel, right? And it's very clear about what we consider reformed and evangelical theology and historical Christian theology of all of our creeds. It's clear about human sexuality. About the boundaries of sexuality in marriage. It's very clear about God created human gender. He created this male and created this female in his own image. It's very clear about the sanctity of unborn life. and very clear that he knit us together in our mother's womb. And before we were born, he knew us. The Bible speaks clearly to these things and so many other things. But there are many places that the Bible is not clear. And it says there is room for us to differ. To have opinions. To have opinions. And we don't need to quarrel about them. So that's where the freedom from each other in those Areas, eating and drinking, and many other Christian traditions. Last week we made examples of pulpits and pews, and so many other Christian traditions that are just, they're not biblical, they're just Christian culture tradition, and there are differences of opinion and practices in church. And so we look around at churches all around us who do things differently, but we need to be careful. There's no freedom. So Paul's arguing for this. So we need to be clear that there are biblical non-negotiables. There's also such a thing as disputing non-essentials. Some of the theological areas, I would say, are like the mode of baptism. And again, that's why it's disputable. It's not an indifferent matter. We, many of us feel very strongly about it. But Baptists and Presbyterians and all the different, they have a different view of both the mode, perhaps, or even the age. But we all believe in the baptism, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in water. And there is enough agreement on there. There are people in this very church who disagree with my view of baptism. And you're a member of this church, and we worship together. Because it's not essential to salvation. And what it makes it a matter of salvation has a whole other theological So it's important. It's very important. This, this issue. Some of us are saying, well, you know, Paul takes more space here in the entire chapter of 14 and into 15 dealing with this issue of Christians not quarreling over non-essential matters and arguing for unity and grace in the church. So much so that in verses 7 to 12, where we're coming down this morning, that what feels like mundane matters, what you eat, what you drink, what days you celebrate, what feels like many mundane matters, right now he's going to put in the most profound theological context. He's going to take those matters and he is going to anchor them, root them in some of the most profound, indisputable Christian doctrine that is imaginable. He makes it a matter of spiritual and eschatological importance. It's a matter of who we are. And the destiny that we, that we share, right? We see this in verse 7, because in verse 7, as we look down here, in number 2, he says, do not judge because we belong to Christ. He roots it in our connectedness to Christ together, right? In verse 7, he says, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. All of us do. And if we die, we die to the Lord. All of us do. So whether we're living or whether we're dying, 
the thorns. And he grounds his argument for us then to be gracious and accepting and not quarreling and giving each other freedom and room in our belonging, our togetherness in Christ. We are the Lord. All of us are. Whenever we think about some of these things, we're all we're brothers and we're sisters. We don't live or die for ourselves. If you're living and whatever you're doing, be better because you're not doing it to yourself, so to speak. And if you're dying in these things and putting an end to them, you're not dying to yourself. In other words, what he's saying is it's not about you. You're living and you're dying, but you're not doing either one. You don't belong to you. What he's saying is, alive or dead, you and I belong to Christ. We have been bought by his blood. And we belong to him. And so he says, belonging to him, you're not yourself. You don't live for yourself. You're not free to judge yourself. You're not free to judge yourself. You don't live for yourself. It's not about you. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, we read, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God? Don't you know the Spirit of God has taken residence in every one of us who belongs to Christ? And what is, it, what is the significance of that? That the Spirit lives in each one of us when He tells us, you're not your own. How did this happen? You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Right? You're not your own. We live or die belong to the Lord. So glorify God in your body. And that includes our mouth and in our mind and how we judge and look down on each other and argue with each other and all of those other things. We're glorifying. We don't belong to that. We're not free to do all of those things. He says, don't do those things because you belong to me. And so do they. We're a ransomed people. We're a purchased people. Belonging, he says, to him. God is our father. Christ is our brother. The spirit is our life. We belong to him. So in verse in life and in death, we belong to Christ. We are the Lord. We are His servants. We are His people. We are His children. We are His family. Right? The household of God. This is in my house. It's perfect. We say, wouldn't it be, how many parents here are thinking that the, in your house where you're just like driving, whether they're in the backseat or in your house, and you're like, please, please take me home. That's what he's saying. We're family together. King Jesus is our common Lord. He has gathered us from the nations, and he's gathered us together, and he has made us a people. He's made us a family, a kingdom of sons and daughters. We all bear the same name. We all wear the same armor. We all march under the same banner. We all serve the same captain and king. So we're all in this army. And he says, get in step with The greatest privilege in the universe, my friend, is belonging to him. And we do. The king has some things to say to us. We belong to him together. Together we are blessed. And as the temple of the Holy Spirit, he says, we are free from the law and the ceremony. 
freed from those particular days that they kept throughout the Old Testament. We're, we're freed from some of the restrictions on food. The sheep that comes down before Peter with all the unclean animals from the Old Testament in it, and God says, kill. And, and, and Jesus declares all food the same. We're freed from all of these kinds of boundaries, freed from the slavery of sin and death. But we're not free to do whatever we want. We are those who pray together. Together. Our Father. Not my will be done. Your will be done. We are those who pray That makes us not free to do whatever we want. It makes us free to serve the Lord in fullness. Not our will be done, but His will be done. That should be the one of the deepest longings of your, your heart and your life is that every day that more and more you're doing less of you and more of His will, more of what He wants, more of the way that He has made you and designed you and called you into His service. Not my will, but your will be done. Second Corinthians 5.15, it says, He died for all so that those who live might not live for themselves any longer. Ourselves in these things. To what with all our hearts, please him in these things. To live for him. Whether whether I live or whether I die, I am the Lord's and to do his will. You remember Jesus at the well said, My food is to do the will of my father. It's the same for every believer who is a brother and sister in Christ. Our food is to do the will of our father. Philippians 1, 20 and 21, Paul says this, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ is going to be honored in my body, whether by life or whether by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He's saying the same thing here that he's saying there. In life and death, we're a ransom people that belong to him. And in life and death, we don't belong to ourselves, but to Him. And so all of these things, we live not for ourselves, but for Him. And what is His will? We pray, not my will be done, but your will be done. What is His will? He is telling us right here in this passage, His will is our humility in these things and our unity together. Right? That's His will. That you would humble yourself about your opinion. That the Bible's not clear on to one another and preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To love one another without pride, without judgment, without looking down. And where we differ. You judge it this way and I judge it this way. I love you, brother. I respect your opinion. And the Bible's not clear. Maybe you're right at the end. Each one should be convinced in his own mind, he says. And then live to honor the Lord in that decision. That you believe it to be right. That you'll give the same freedom to your brothers and sisters on these issues. And if this is not strong enough, that we belong to Christ in life and death and all this, this is not strong enough argument to get us to do what he's saying here. He moves now to appeal to the infinite Christ of our redemption, the cross 
of our belonging to Him. Isn't that where He goes after this? He says that we belong to Him in this way. And then in verse 9, He goes on to say, For to this end, right? And for there connects what He's saying now to what was just being said. He says all that. And He says, For to this end, to this end means to this goal, this purpose. Right? We don't use the word that way that very often. Now, I might say, I'm going to the mall. Now, I might say, To what end? We don't, you, we don't say it like that anymore, but we do. What we mean is, for what purpose? Why are you going to the mall? What is your goal? Are you going to buy new shoes? You know, to what end? Right, so to the end here is the purpose and the goal, right? So he says, for to this end, with this purpose and this goal in mind, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of the dead and the living the Lord of all of us, that all that He's been saying about us not belonging to ourselves or living for ourselves or being free to please ourselves, He says it was for this end that Jesus lived and died and rose again was to create this community who loves each other in this way. To this end, the cross, the resurrection, God's plan from before the creation of the world, the cross didn't just happen. It was His plan before the world was made. So God's purpose, God's plan before the creation to send His own Son that He should die and rise again. It was to this end that you would be His family. Brothers and sisters living, dwelling together in a community in peace and in harmony and grace and forgiveness. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, He chose us in Him, that is God the Father chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundations of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. That we should be gathered from the nations, forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Christ. That we would belong to Him in love. He did all of this. He sent His own Son in love. He predestined us for the adoption as sons and daughters as a family. From before the foundations of the world, this is what He's been planning and doing. So isn't that what Paul's saying? Don't mess it up. Right? God is doing something here. And we should be bickering about things that don't matter. It's not becoming even in the life of the church, but it's also not a very good witness to the world. towards one another than to be loved, humility, welcome, verse 1, to welcome them, he says in verse 3, they've been welcomed, you've all been welcomed, have you you've all been welcomed by God? Very. Someone makes someone feel uncomfortable. They don't agree with you on everything you say. Commands the death of the cross. It forbids our judgment of each other. It calls us our unity is at the center of the eternal plan. And the breaking of the king's peace is a serious thing. The scripture is so clear about this, Old Testament and New. The breaking of the king's peace is a serious matter. He has paid a high price to purchase to create And he calls us together. First Peter 1, 18 and 19, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile 
ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but he has accomplished this with the precious blood of Christ. He paid the highest price that this community be brought together and family. He ransomed us from sin, death, and hell. For this end did he come. For this end, the cross. For this end, the resurrection. For this end, to create a people for himself, brought together in Christ, one, even as he and the Father are one, loving and gracious, even as he is. And if Paul sees, Paul's not done. See, just when you thought that the stakes the couldn't get any higher, right? all that he has brought to bear just now to, to, to call for peace in the life of the church, but Paul goes all in. He's not done, is he? Verse 10 through 12. Because he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. As I live, says the Lord, every knee is going to bow to me and every tongue is going to confess to me. So each of us is going to give an account of himself to God. And now he goes all in. If the stakes weren't high enough, now he says, we're all going to stand before the judgment of God. Every knee is going to bow, verse 11. Side note. He's quoting the Old Testament right there. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess to God. And he's quoting and reading right there. But that's applied to Philippians here too. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is to say Jesus is God. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that that which is applied to the Father is applied to the Son. He's given the name that is above every name and every knee will bow to him because it is the name and we will give an account. And so Paul moves on from the cross at the center of history. For this he died, and for this he rose again. He moves on from the cross and stands at the center of history, and he looks down to the eschatological end. That's what eschatology is, the end, the judgment at the end. And he brings it forward into view as he's trying to get the church to understand how important the unity of the church is. And he brings before them this vision of judgment that, the, the last day, live as a church in light of the last day. He says we must be very careful about the way that we judge each other. Because one day soon, Lord Himself will judge us. Matthew 7 1 5 to 7 1. Jesus says this judge not. Lest you be judged. For the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. The measure that you put on others, will be measured to you. As you be careful how you judge, the standard that you're setting is a way that God, in some way, is going to bring back up to you. About the standard you use to judge and to condemn and to put down. Give an account, he says, to God for the ways that we've broken the peace, bickering and judging, complaining, hindering the work of the church, 
gospel. And so in verse 10, it's rather startling, really, in verse 10, where he, the mood changes, the tone changes, the tense changes. Because here Paul turns to the second person. You know, first person is I, third person is he or she, second person is you. Paul's been talking in very abstract terms about very large doctrinal ideas of the death and the resurrection and the coming of Christ and the coming of the judgment and these big things. And then he turns around in verse 10 and he says, why do you, you, right? He turns it on the church. He's speaking directly to the church. He's speaking directly to you, to me. Why do you? Why do you despise or look down on a brother or sister? You need to you need to hear in a sense the Lord standing before you asking you these questions. Right? That's that's the force of it. Why do we do it? Why do we do it? This is what we do, my friend. This is what we do. Now Christian tradition of all kinds that we love, that we grew up with, that we're sentimental about, where it just feels like it's God's thing, but the reality is it's a tradition that started maybe 100 years ago, 200 years ago, not 2,000 years ago, it's definitely not today. But there are things we feel so strong about, whether it's music, instrumentation, pulpits and pews, and different days and different things that we, and we do this. Lifestyle choices, all kinds of just beautiful things. Why? He said, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you look down on or despise? You're not their Lord. You're not their judge. None of us lives to himself. We will stand or each of us will stand or fall before our own master. Each of us will stand before that and give an account. God says, because God is the judge and we are among the judge, let us stop passing judgment on one another. That's verse 13. That's his conclusion, right? For then we shall avoid all the extreme folly of trying to usurp God's prerogative and anticipate the judgment day by being the judge ourselves. And this is Paul's application. You could leave it there in verse 13. This is, do not pass judgment on one another any longer. That's the conclusion of the matter. I'm not going to do that. One more thing I want to do. I want to come back and just spend a few minutes clarifying this idea that we should judge not lest we be judged, or his command here that we don't judge each other. Why? Because this command is often very misunderstood and often very confused. There are many people that like this verse and use it to hide behind it. They do things that the Scripture clearly condemns. And when confronted, they insulate themselves by saying, judge not, don't judge me. How often do you hear that? Don't judge me, but... And we, we can insulate ourselves and think, you know, no, the Bible says you can't judge me. And that's not true at all. That's not what I'm saying. So I want you to hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. I'm talking about non-essential things. Secondary doctrines and non-essential things. Things that are disputable because they're not clear in Scripture. Things that are clear in Scripture, we judge. And if 
you, you make you use discernment and you make decisions. In, in this sense, right, Paul, the entire book of Romans, Paul has been laying out what I would call indisputable theology and indisputable morality. That's what he's been doing in the book of Romans. That, so he, he fully believes in, in indisputable things. He will get pretty harsh on you when you stray from it. There's no compromise on biblical truth. But what I'm saying is, like what I think Paul is saying, is we're called to distinguish between essentials and non-essentials. It's a mark of Christian wisdom and maturity to be able to discern between the two. We must think and judge all things according to the Scripture. Everything comes under the truth and judgment of the Scripture. It gives us clear moral and theological teaching. I've already said about human sexuality and human gender and the sanctity of unborn human life and so many other doctrines that we hold near and dear in the Apostles' Creed and in all those places that are indisputable and uncompromising in their truth and in their and, and their stance and moral things that are clear in the Scripture. Let me just read Galatians 5, 19-21. You know it well. It comes right before the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are evident. They're indisputable. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no wiggle room for Paul. There's no disputable matter here. And so I, I just want us to be clear that where the, the, the thing is where the Bible is clear and dogmatic, we are clear and dogmatic. And where the Bible is not so clear and it's not dogmatic, then we need to have humility. Unity in the essentials and love and grace in the non-essentials. Sin, as the Bible defines it, should be gently and lovingly confronted in the church, in your brothers and sisters. If you love them and they're doing something contrary to something that is clear in the Scripture, then we should lovingly talk to them and tell them to follow Jesus and go this way. Right? We're going this way. The Bible is very clear. Right? And we're given in Matthew 18 a clear pattern to confront sin in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go to him one-on-one. And if he listens to you, just one your brother. Like you, you confront it. You deal with it. You, you deal with it. You do it privately. You do it small. But then he says if they don't listen to you, it's not the end of the matter. If there's real sin in the life of the church, the Bible is clear about it. He says you need to get one or two to go with you and try to get it. And if he doesn't listen to you even then, then you need to tell it to the church. You need to involve the church leadership. Right? And if you won't listen even to church leadership, he says, you can't be a member of the church. You can't be here to, and, and to live in a way that is contrary to the clear teaching of the church. Paul writes in, in, in applying church discipline, we have an example of it in 1 Corinthians 5, and, and just starting in verse 1, but in 12 and 13 he says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Because you can't judge people outside. They're not following the Lord. They don't know Jesus. They don't have his word. They're not, you know, we don't judge outsiders in that sense. We preach the gospel to outsiders. But listen to what he says. Is it not those inside the church who ought to judge? He's not contradicting Jesus to judge not outside the church. Right? There are different matters to overlook. And Paul is very clear about it. Romans, Romans laying down indisputable doctrine and morality 
and then says, you know what, but there's a lot of things about this interview that I don't like. You need to let go. But is it not those inside the church who are the judge? Not the judge those who are outside, but there's an authority within the church, both us as brothers and sisters, and we're vested in protecting in the way we exercise church discipline. What we do is earn good from evil, truth from error, according to the standard of the word. Here's the church about getting belonging to the beautiful thing. John Stott says this We must not elevate non essentials, especially issues of custom and ceremony, to the level of the essential and make them tests of orthodoxy and conditions of fellowship. Nor must we marginalize fundamental theological moral questions that are clear in the scriptures as if they were only cultural or of no great importance. Paul distinguished between these things, and so should you. The mark of Christian wisdom and maturity. So may God grant us courage to stand uncompromisingly on biblical truth and morality. Grace that our freedom on disputed matters. Wisdom to know the difference between them. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true, and I pray that it would be clear in our minds this morning, and that you would indeed come near. We who are the temple of the Holy Spirit, fill us with your spirit, and, and open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of your word. Help us to be discerning and wise. As we stand uncompromisingly on the truth and morality that you have given us in your word, and the wisdom to know when things are not so clear and to allow grace in and so unity. Forgive us for grace and love and freedom and unity in the language of the church. For we ask it in Jesus' name.